0: Boils and ghouls, I'm so glad you're all here. It's time for the Wicked Library Halloween episode. Psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences.
1: and Piles from Society13 and the creator of the Wicked Library. Dan Foydick, the current host and producer of the Wicked Library, has started a Patreon campaign with a lot of great perks for those of you who want to keep the show alive and most of all, free. It's an expensive endeavor to keep a podcast like the Wicked Library up and running. Website costs, equipment, storage for all the episodes. It takes a lot of money to keep a show like this free for all of you. And besides that, think of The Librarian. Yeah, the poor soul. Imagine if he had to go get a job somewhere else.
0: Hey, new guy! Come here, we got a complaint! Hello, kid. Uh, I mean, Steve. This guy ordered chicken fingers. What the hell are these? Oh, chicken fingers. I thought you said children's fingers. I always have a few of those on hand. Get it? (laughs) Aw, you're fired. Oh, Oh, well, guess it's back to the DMV. (laughs) And stop laughing like that. It's spooky. Promise?
1: So, if you want to help your favorite podcast, and especially to keep the librarian off the streets, go to www.patreon.com backslash wickedlibrary, and thank you for your support.
0: There's plenty to be afraid of. Hold on to yourselves before something else grabs hold of you. Don't worry about the lights. It's darker than ever now. Start screaming. Something extra wicked this way comes. (laughs)
2: So, welcome to the Wicked Library annual Halloween episode. Which one is this? I don't even remember. This, uh, well,
1: I will take part of the blame in not being able to log, <laughs> the because the way the seasons used to go, it would be like, you know, season one had a Halloween episode, and then I went almost immediately into season two, mm-hmm. and then there was no Halloween episode for season two, because I cut it off. Right before going into season three, which had a Halloween episode, I think. I'm I'm, I'm not—I'm honestly—there was something that got screwed up where season three had ten episodes, and and then I had to start at season four. Uh, That's a long story that I don't want to embarrass anyone, but it wasn't my fault, I swear to God.
2: Well, this season has two Halloween episodes. Indeed. Because we did the live—we did the last two live— and, and just so everybody knows, if they're not aware, uh, who you're listening to in the studio here is Nelson W. Piles, the creator and original host of the Wicked Library, and me, Dan Foytek. And I thought, since we're not doing a live show this year, it would be fun to get Nelson in the studio, and we do like a pre-mortem on these stories. <laughs> Because uh, what we decided to do, based on popular requests from listeners, was to go back to season one and dig up some of the old corpses of the original season one episodes that have been lost to time, and take advantage of the fact that we now have relationships with uh, great composers and voice actors, and we could really take these original stories by these authors and take them to 11 or 13
1: i think the most important thing about the show uh five years later which is officially five years uh that the wicked library has been is the one thing that the wicked library did not have five years ago was production value quite quite literally and figuratively
2: um everybody's got to start somewhere though i mean it's a great concept it was hey we're all independent authors it's hard to get promoted whenever you are on your own and you don't have a huge production company behind you, like Double Day and so and so and so on. That you had a great concept, which was let's entertain by accident and promote the authors, well, so that actually, they can find new fans, right?
1: Well, it was it was actually the reverse of that. It was let's entertain, and the 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 subtext was, and we're going to promote. All these great authors that you've never heard of, yeah, and it was, and it was essentially uh, what it still is, which is a a great free promotional tool for independent authors, and it to to see it go from uh, twenty episodes uh, or, or less from the pilot episode, uh-huh. um, eighteen of which were listened to by the author, and then. <laughs> And then to just, you know, watch it slowly, slowly, slowly build up and up. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, I don't, I don't want to call the Wicked Library a juggernaut, but we're certainly, you know, we're certainly a, a popular destination these days as opposed to five years ago.
2: Yeah. I mean, it has grown quite a bit. We have some really great fans, some great listeners. We have a lot of great supporters on Patreon that makes things like this possible, which in the beginning, you know, funded on a shoestring, a hope and a prayer, it's really hard to do, you know, what we can do today with the show. Yes. And that is thanks to you the listeners and thanks especially to you the Patreon supporters that are you know allows us to put together a show like this and to do something really special in thanks to you and in thanks to the authors and you know we'll we'll do more like this in the future obviously. Yeah, I think it I uh, the 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 show has
1: become the institution that I had always hoped it would would become, and that and that squarely on you, man. No, oh. and not that not that we want to make the Halloween episode like Nelson comes on and and you know puts Dan on his shoulders and parades him around, going he is a hero. <laughs> but uh, you you did a you've done an an absolute fantastic job, and every every season that goes by justifies me turning the keys over to you, man. So kudos to you, sir. Well.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. So, everybody wants stories. Let's not talk too much. Uh, The first story we're going to do is one I don't believe that has ever been on the Wicked Library before. It has not. So, we do want to give you something new, something fresh, something exciting. They're all exciting, but this one's new and fresh. It's a fresh corpse. Fresh. (laughs) Um, So, this is Nelson's story why don't you introduce it? I'll, I'll let you do the honors since it's your story. And it's really cool because you narrated this story and we got our good friends over at Cathedral Sounds to do the score for it. And I, I'm really pleased with the way that it came together. Uh, I got to play and edit and and add some effects and things to your voice. But, you know, the uh, the story, originally we had thought about bringing in, there's a young boy in the story and we had thought about casting a young actor to play that. And what you did with the story, I was like, you know what? It's fine. The way it is, you know, thanks. You play all the parts. I do. Which is really cool actually, because that's traditional for the way the show was done. Even in season six, when I took over a lot of the, the parts, I did pretty much all the parts. And that's the way it was prior to that for the first five seasons. For the most part, you did have, you know, your, your wife on an episode, I believe
1: and- I had, I had, I had my wife on an episode. Um, I had both of my daughters appear. Yeah. Um, uh, particularly Sam, Sam seemed to really, you know, she, she really liked to dig her teeth into it. She yeah. even did for the very first Halloween episode. She, she clanged the bells for the Lafcadilla Hearn <laughs> story. So That's awesome. But yeah, so, so the story is called, um, fishing hole, fishing hole and i I'd, I'd read uh i'd read something from stephen king where he said every writer should endeavor to write their own version of the devil and daniel webster and i was like okay i'll take a swipe at it and this was the result and it is one of uh it's a story uh that came out in my uh collection a couple of years ago called huh. everything here is a nightmare and it remains one of my favorite stories because it's not that it's uh evil or terrifying it was just turned out to be a very uh a very sweet story with a big evil influence right smack in the middle of it yeah yeah and it's you know and it's about uh it's almost the uh the antithesis of the story that will follow this uh we'll get to that later but uh let's uh let's all give a listen shall we fishing hole Jeb cast his line out across the lake in the early morning mist. The sun had just begun to peek through the mountains and caught the yellow and red bobber as the line arced in the air. It was a good cast, and the bait and bobber and hook landed with a gentle splash about five feet from the large, dead tree half-submerged in the water. After a moment, the bobber settled and floated gently on the water. Pleased, Jeb sat down on his tackle box and planted the fishing rod at an angle into the soft, wet dirt of the shore. It was a beautiful morning, and Jeb was alone. He was a little surprised since it was mid-July on a Saturday. The sixth grade loomed in the distance and was only a passing concern this morning. He enjoyed the silence and the solitude. Silence, by a fishing hole his daddy had told him, wasn't really silent. You'll never hear more things more alive and busy than on a Saturday morning at your fishing spot, he said once. Of course, he said this during opening day of fishing last year when the shoreline had been crawling with dads and their kids, all jockeying for a good spot to throw their lines. But today, it was just him, and that suited him just fine. He took a deep breath, anticipating a bit of a wait for any fish to take a swipe at his bait when he saw the bobber dip then dip again. He went to grab the pole but hesitated. He didn't want to spook whatever was sniffing around his hook. In near-perfect synchronicity, the bobber dove under the water, and Jeb grabbed his pole, pulling a decent chunk of the dirt with it. He felt the line being pulled forward, set his feet, and pulled back on the pole. Got him. He started to reel in what he had caught and was surprised at just how much of a fight he was getting. He reeled, pulled, and repeated. This thing felt big. His heart raced and he smiled. He wished his daddy could see this, and this thought darkened his brow slightly. Daddy had been dead only a year now, and fishing was the one simple thing they both loved. It felt odd sometimes fishing without him, but sometimes it felt like it brought him closer to him somehow. Still, it wasn't the same, and it made Jeb sad. Jeb's daddy was a long-haul trucker. He'd be out on the road sometimes six days a week, sometimes longer. But when he would be done, the first thing he'd do is kiss his mom for a good long time, pick Jeb up and say, Grab them poles, boy, let's go catch us some grub. And Jeb would run all the way to the shed and grab all the fishing gear and throw it into the back of the battered old green pickup. Jeb and his daddy would fish for a few hours, sometimes not catching anything at all, but enjoying every single minute of it. Jeb would fill daddy in on school, what he'd been doing to help mom during the week, and daddy would tell Jeb about all the cool stuff he saw on the road, like tornadoes. You really saw one? Jeb had asked the first time he fished with his father. His eyes were as big as saucers. Yes, sir, sure did, his daddy said. Spookiest thing I ever seen, too. It was one of them long stretches of highway right smack in the middle of Kansas. Of course, pretty much any highway in Kansas might as well be smack in the middle. Anyways, you could see for miles and miles these corn stalks, just like in them postcards I sent last month. Jib's daddy would send him a postcard from wherever he gassed up. He told him he could make a map one day of all the places in the country he'd seen. So, sun's just a-beatin' down like it does, and way off in the distance, I seen it. This big son of a you-know-what black cloud just getting bigger and bigger. I'm thinking to myself that it's just a storm with some rain, which would have been nice seeing as how the sun beats on a man even if he's in a truck. Jeb listened carefully to every word. His daddy was one good storyteller. Well, in about ten minutes, I see the sky turn green. I mean, from a real pretty deep blue like your mama's eyes to an angry dark green. I heard of this before, like when we was watching that show on Tornadoes a few months back. So I get a little spooked and I slow down a hair. Then all of a sudden I seen it start to hail, it's slamming all over the truck like I owed money or some such thing. And then I saw it. Jeb was nearly holding his breath. Used to call them things fingers of God cause it really did look like the big guy sticking his almighty finger right into the ground. It was huge even though it was a few miles away. It's just tearing through this cornfield. All you could see was dust filling this thing up and somehow making it bigger. Like he was eating everything that it happened to run over. I stopped the truck because I wasn't going to get any closer to this thing than I had to. I reckoned I'd be okay as long as me and that tornado didn't get closer to each other. It kept rolling along and I swear it sounded like a freight train. I seen it come up on this old looking corn silo and just picked it up and threw it. His daddy looked at him and smiled. Is pretty spooky, son. I can't believe you was scared, Daddy. Jeb had said when he was able to breathe again. You ain't scared of nothing. His daddy chuckled a little and put his arm around his son. Well, Jeb I reckon there are about only three things that spook me in this here world. Making your mama mad's one. Not getting home to fish with my boys the other. Nowadays, tornadoes. He looked his son in the eye. I don't know that I'm scared of some windfinger. Jeb laughed and hugged his daddy's torso. You just remember one thing, son. Your mom and your daddy love you more than anything in this world and the next. you remember that, you won't be scared of nothing either. Why is that? Because your mom and you love me. And ain't nothing can touch you if you got that. They pulled their lines in and went home to get some dinner. Two weeks after that, Jeb's daddy would be killed on the same stretch of highway by an oil truck thrown by a tornado. The crash was so bad that his remains had been sent to the funeral home in a parcel envelope. Between the money they got from the trucking company, the oil company, and his daddy's life insurance, Jeb and his mom were pretty well off. All Jeb had to worry about was going into the sixth grade, and a life without his best big buddy, he thought about this the whole time he was reeling in this monster on the other end of his fishing pole, and the excitement of it pushed his sadness out of his mind. His arms were starting to ache, and it was getting harder to pull on it. He hesitated for a minute, remembering what his daddy said about a difficult fish. He's fighting you good, little little line out, let him run a piece. Count to five, start again, hard, but not too hard to snap your line. He pushed the release on his reel and counted to five. It was a long five count and he heard the line scream as that sucker took off. He spoke the word five and pulled back on the pole started to reel again. He was making headway again, still fighting, but he felt renewed strength and he even smiled. Reel, pull, repeat. He saw the yellow and red bobber through the water at last as it came closer to the shore. He steadied himself and stood up. Jeb couldn't wait to see what he had caught. As the bobber came closer, Jeb saw something dark and large in the water. Really large, in fact. He worried that his line would snap and tried to not be as forceful with his reeling. It was about 20 feet away from the shore now. It didn't look like any kind of fish he'd ever seen before. He didn't know what it looked like, but it was big and he was dragging it through the lake right to him. He was getting a little nervous because it was getting easier to reel. That meant one thing. The thing was swimming toward him. The lack of tension on the line made him stumble backwards, and he sat down hard on his tackle box. It hurt more than he thought it would, and he nearly dropped the fishing pole. Ten feet away now, and he'd stopped reeling. He stood back up and with one hand opened his tackle box. It was what his mom had called a hot mess. Lures, hooks, sinkers were strewn all over the inside of the box, and the knife he was looking for was not in sight anywhere. His eyes darted to the lake, and he saw it. Jeb's mouth went dry. At first, it looked like he'd caught one of those horseshoe crabs he'd seen on a show about sea life. Then, as it rose out of the water, it looked like a helmet. Now, as it rose up further, he saw a nearly black-moldered weed-covered skull with a hook in its bottom jaw. The skull was still attached to the body, which seemed to be dragging itself up from the lake. The water this close to the shoreline was less than a foot deep, and he saw two arms rise up and push down. It was trying to stand up, and it was succeeding. It stood up about six feet tall and was dripping water and filth from the lake. It looked like it was wearing a suit. Casually, the thing ran its gnarled hand across the front of itself as if to smooth out the rotted cloth suit coat it was wearing. The skull looked to the left and to the right, and then righted Jeb who had fallen back down, still holding his fishing pole and trembling. The thing stared at Jeb and reached up to its face. It grabbed the fishing line with one hand and followed it to the hook. It took a moment, but the thing managed to work the hook out of its jaw. There was still a chunk of bait on it, which the thing bit into and tossed the hook aside. The thing loudly chewed. Jeb couldn't breathe. He did not and could not believe his eyes. He had never been so terrified in his entire life. You got any more of that fish, boy? The thing in front of him asked. Jeb kicked his legs to get away from the thing. The voice had sounded like a rusted steel car door being slowly opened. The thing took a step forward. Quit moving around, boy, the thing said. I'm trying to focus what's left of these eyes. The thing was still dripping and chewing the piece of bait. It crossed its arms and cocked its head to one side. "'How about that fish? Got any left?' Jeb tried to swallow, to speak, but he couldn't. He nodded his head no, and it was true. He'd only brought the one chunk of fish because he didn't expect to be out that long. "'Shame,' the thing said. "'It was mighty good. Nothing caught out of this here lake for damn sure.' Jeb just sat there, shaking. The thing stretched his arms out and seemed to be basking in the sun. It threw its head back and howled. Its arms shot back down to its sides and did what looked like a little dance. Boy, howdy, that feels so damn good. It stuck out its right hand, or what closely resembled a hand, They call me Old Gooseberry, but you could just call me Goose. I'm right grateful for the little breakfast you give me this morning. His hand stood there in front of Jeb's face for about ten seconds until Goose pulled it back. Oh, sorry, boy. I guess I look a little worn to those young eyes of yours, Goose said, straightening up. Hope I ain't scared you too bad. Hell, I was mighty scared when I took a bite out of that hunk of bait you threw in and found myself getting
0: dragged through the lake.
1: Goose took both arms, wrapped them around himself, and laughed like he'd just told the funniest joke in the world. After Goose's laughter died, he put his hands on his hips. Well, you just gonna sit there with your mouth open or you gonna say hi? Jeb slowly closed his mouth. He prayed silently for someone, anyone, to come by and save him. But no one did. He swallowed hard and managed to say, Hi. Hi yourself, Goose said. What's your name, young man? Jeb blinked. Um, I ain't supposed to really talk to strangers, sir. Sir? Goose chuckled. Well, we got us a nice, polite southern boy here. Jeb didn't know how to respond to that, but he didn't have to as Goose squatted down on his haunches. Your mom and papa had done taught you right, boy. Lots of dangerous people in this world. Lots of dangerous things in this world, too. Jeb nodded and had to agree. He felt like he was looking at one of them right now. Goose must have sensed that very thought because he immediately responded. Oh, you don't have to worry about old Goose, boy. How dangerous could an old man in the bottom of a lake be? And if I was dangerous, why would he be talking all nice to you? Why do you live in a lake? Jeb asked. Well, that's a real fair question. Afraid I can't tell you that, though. Jeb looked puzzled. Before he could ask why, Goose supplied the answer. How could I tell a secret to someone who ain't told me their name? Jeb, still afraid, heard some logic in that question. He was hesitant to say anything, much less tell this thing his name, but he didn't get the impression that he was going to be leaving anytime soon either. He took a breath. Jeb. Goose stood up and gave the boy a small salute. A pleasure to make your acquaintance, young master Jeb, Goose said. Can I help you up, Jeb? You sure do look uncomfortable sitting there in the dirt. Jeb looked down and saw he was still sitting in the dirt. He pushed himself up and stood on steadier feet than he thought he had under him. He slapped the back of his cut-off shorts, getting the dirt off of him. He looked at Goose, who was simply standing there, like he'd been there all day. "'There you are!' Goose said, looking him up and down. "'Gonna be a tall drink of water, I'm sure, when you're grown!' Jeb looked back at him and saw just how big Goose seemed to be. The sun was directly behind Goose, and Jeb couldn't really see his face, which he considered a good thing. "'Well now, you wanted to know how it is I come to be living in this here lake, and now that we're all friendly,' I feel much better about telling you all about it. Goose turned toward the lake and again stretched his arms out as if he were going to preach. He spoke with his back to Jeb. Very long time ago, I was a young man with dreams and ambitions, just like anybody else in this world. I had visions of a world that was good and just and right. And one day, it was all ripped from me. His hands turned into fists. Just torn, torn right out of my hands. And I come to this lake right here and I screamed across the water right to the heavens, Why have you done this so wrong? Well, nothing happened for a good long time, Jeb. But out up from this very lake here rose a beautiful woman and she soothed my soul. She took me in her arms like a babe and dried my tears. She told me I could have all my good things restored to me where they belonged. Slowly, Goose turned around and looked at the young boy. And I said, yes, sweet angel, please. I'd do anything at all to have what was taken from me back. And she kissed my head, and in a flash that shook me all over, everything was made right again. Goose snapped his fingers. It sounded like a dry twig snapping in half, and that made Jeb jump a little. And now that my time has come and gone as part of my bargain, I sit here and I wait for someone like I was. Broken and heart-sick. I wait for someone who has a powerful loss in them. Goose stared at Jeb, who shuddered. Someone just like you, Jebediah, Goose said quietly. Jeb swallowed hard again. He was starting to breathe a little harder, too, and his heart was pounding. Like... Me? Just like you. Come on and tell old Gooseberry what it is you're missing. Jeb couldn't think. He knew what he was missing, and he knew what he wanted back more than anything in the whole world. But he couldn't say it. He wouldn't say it. In the year his daddy had been dead, he never once really talked about it. His mom did, all the time. She'd sit Jeb on her knee and tell him stories of when Jeb's daddy was younger. She'd talk about how much she missed him and how proud he was of Jeb. She would talk about him before he went to bed, and while he would say his prayers before bedtime, she'd always add in that daddy would always look out for his little man. She'd cry and kiss him goodnight, and Jeb would cry too, but he'd never talk about it. He'd never say it out loud to his mom. Sometimes, it seemed it hurt her more than it hurt him, and that always made him sad. And now, he was being offered a chance to have him back. I see that look in your eyes, boy. I can almost smell your loss. Tell old Goose what it is you want so bad. Jeb just stood there. He wished his daddy was back every single night, but there was something that wasn't right. Something wasn't making sense. I know you miss your daddy, Jeb. Hell, your mama misses him too. Wouldn't you like to have him back? This time tomorrow, you could be sitting right here next to him, fishing the whole day away. I didn't say what I wanted," Jeb said. It's all over your face, boy, you know it's true," Goose leaned in closer to Jeb. You ain't scared to have your daddy back, are you? The very idea of him possibly being afraid of his father jarred Jeb. He had never been afraid of his daddy. It made him a little mad. I ain't scared of my daddy," Jeb said. Well, you must be, Goose said. I mean, most young boys your age jump all over the chance of having their dead, mashed-up daddy back in one piece, good as new. Did he do something to you, boy? Did he diddle you a little bit? Jeb felt his face burn, and he frowned. Nobody wanted his daddy back more than him. And diddled... His daddy never laid a hand on him. He had never even been spanked save for one time when he was little. My daddy was a good man, Jeb said, and his voice had a little catch to it. Goose stood back up and held his hands out. Hey now, I ain't trying to say nothing about your old man, but you gotta look at it from where I'm standing. Goose folded his arms. There must be something you're scared of, besides me. For the first time since his daddy's accident, Jeb was angry. It almost felt good to be angry at something else, and he realized he'd spent a lot of the last year being angry at his father for dying. That fact alone made him even angrier. His hands balled into fists. I ain't scared of you. Don't say stuff like that about my daddy. Goose kept his arms folded and cocked his head to one side. But you are scared of me, ain't you? I'm right here in front of you offering you a deal of a lifetime. Only one you're gonna get, by the way. And you're scared to say yes. You must not want your daddy back, cause you're scared. So which is it? You scared of daddy, or you scared of me? Jeb felt something tug in his head. Then he felt it tugging his chest. He opened his hands and crossed his arms, almost the exact same way Goose had his crossed. He took a deep breath and cocked his head to one side. I reckon, Jeb said, there are only about three things in this world that spook me, Goose. Making my mom mad is one, not fishing with my daddy is the other. Nowadays, tornadoes. Jeb shifted his weight, strained his head, and glared directly at Goose. I got a mom who loves me more than anything in this world, and a daddy in the next world who loves me more than anything, too. Nothing can touch me, as long as I got that. So no, I ain't scared of you. Goose's arms dropped to his sides. Well, 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 Goose said finally. Reckon you ain't. Jeb stood there and began to tap his foot. Goose turned slowly without saying another word. He walked into the lake, and before he'd disappeared, he turned his head to see Jeb. You beg me, come tomorrow. Jeb said nothing and watched Goose vanish from sight. He held his position as long as he could, but after about a minute, he began to sob. He buried his face in his hands and began to cry harder. He did this for about five minutes, then wiped his face on his t-shirt. He started to gather his fishing gear and actually felt better than he had in a long while. He took a good long look out across the lake and he didn't feel scared. He closed his eyes tight. I love you, Daddy, he said. A soft, cool breeze swept his matted blonde hair back across his face. He didn't hear anything except the birds and a few fish jumping in the lake. But it sounded like, and I love you too, anyway. And that was fine by Jeb.
3: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.
2: Yeah. Hopefully everybody enjoyed that. It was a fun story and I know whenever uh, I talked to Sean Park over at Cathedral Sounds he said they had a lot of fun scoring the story. It was um a lo- you know a, a great story. It had a lot of heart to it and um you know that's it's one of the things that's fun about doing the show in its current form is I try to do a lot of different subgenres of horror. So it's not all the same, you know. I like I like to explore coming to horror late in life as I did when I took over the show it was fun for me to kind of say well let's explore ghost stories and slasher fiction and you know the more traditional horror genre stories and and just kind of introduce people to not only new authors that they haven't heard before but also maybe new types and subgenres of horror that they haven't explored before
1: absolutely and 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 there's the great thing coming in from my end is there are a lot of authors that, you know, I you know, it I like it when something is familiar familiar and new to me as well. I mean, I you know, I knew I was familiar with all of the authors during the during my tenure as the host, so it's kind of nice to like come back home and see what's going on. Oh, there's all these new members of the family. Yeah. Like uh, Brooklyn Wara and uh, Gwendolyn Keist, and you know, just really uh, diverse uh, cacophony of different types of wicked, essentially.
2: Yes, absolutely. So our next story is kind of a a pair with the first story. There's some similarities. There's water involved. Indeed. Uh, there's a father involved, um, and in this story, the father is kind of the dark force um guiding the young girl in case, instead of a young boy to do some wicked things. Oh, indeed. Indeed. This was the this was the first ever appearance of Jessica McHugh on the Wicked Library. She was ep- this was episode five. Well we 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 lovingly refer to Jessica as our, our resident author and um we, we now have some new resident authors that Tend to show up quite frequently in the show because you know one of the fun things about doing this show is the variety. But one of the important things about doing this show is the people that deliver time and time again the folks you can rely on to always deliver the wicked, the spooky, and just you know create a fun experience for the listener absolutely
1: absolutely and And Jessica is consistently and the 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 three authors uh coming up, including Jessica. I had met uh through a publishing company called postmortem press, and that was almost exclusively the the source of where the authors came from, and we're all like this quirky eclectic uh group of extroverted introverts that you know all sit around and you know whenever we see each other, we talk for for hours and just have a good old time yeah and Jessica is just she is you know i've said it before she's like the the bar that you want to set yourself as a writer like mm. me personally as a writer like she just put she just released her 21st novel um and she's been writing professionally for about i i want to say 7 years at yeah. this point i mean she's she's no one has she's a the bet, real deal she's the real thing uh nobody nobody that i know has that kind of work ethic yeah she's working on things simultaneously and she's brilliant she's absolutely brilliant
2: great writer and yeah i mean that's one of the things when i took over she was the first episode for season six uh and she was the final episode for season six she was my bookend she was your bookend and because you know she has done so much for the show she's been such an important part of the show i always endeavor as you did to kind of make sure that she appears in every season of the show in some capacity and you know this being Uh, I'll look back at season one of the wicked library and kind of where the show came from and where it is today. Uh, Obviously very appropriate that we use one of my favorite stories in the silt. And this one is narrated by Addison Peacock.
4: A week before I was born, my father died in the Creek behind our house. Growing up without a dad wasn't ideal. But through my mother, I grew to know and love him as people love dead celebrities. She spoke so highly of him in her stories. How could he become anything but a legend? My dad was James Dean to me. He was Yul Brenner and Cary Grant. In reality, he was nothing like those men. He didn't drive too fast, smoke too much, or have a bad tan. He was a man who never wanted to be a father. But my mother hadn't known that. She hadn't known a lot of things about him, even after his death. So she fabricated a life for me to admire. Either that, or she was so deluded she actually believed he was a caring, faithful man. I learned the truth, in time. As I discovered the kind of girl I was, I also discovered how inaccurate those Louding stories were. My birth was an accident. Mom says I was a blessing, but I think my dad would have argued that claim. Accident always seemed a more appropriate description, especially after the secrets in the creek surfaced. I suppose my age could contest that. I'm still dough, as people put it. But dad is done. Fully baked and risen. Fallen, too. Bread like him was too burnt to be eaten, unsalvageable even after scraping the char from the crust. Hell, he was so ruined, he took the pan to the trash with him. I don't know why I thought my fate would be any different. I never had a chance to be daddy's little girl. But after all that happened in the creek, I know now I was never anything but... The creek was my playground for years before I learned my mother had found Dad's body in the shallow water. Drowning was the apparent cause of death, and I had no reason to question it. I don't know if it was residual stress or medicinal liquor that changed my mom's story, but when she spoke of the bullet hole for the first time, I realized I could no longer trust her stories. You told me he drowned, I said. She nodded. Whiskey decorating her chin after a gulp. I thought so too. But then I flipped him over. And I saw the bullet hole in his forehead. All the way through to the bone, to the brain. She clasped her hands together in shaking prayer. He was shot. In the head, in the creek, in the. The rest of the whiskey bottle was all it took to erase her confession. When I broached the subject again, she shook her head, amused by my wild imagination. Shot? No, sweetie, your father drowned. What a terrible thing to happen to such a nice man. She was unconvincing. When she trembled, when she paled, when she... spoke about the bloody tunnel in my father's forehead. Then she was easy to believe. You'd think I wouldn't want to visit the creek after that. Not to play, anyway. But I was more compelled. Instead of strolling through or splashing in the stream, I dug into the silt. I lifted the rocks, uncovering creatures that breathed the same water that took my father's last breath. Holding them, I felt like I was holding him. The cold slap of minnow fins Was that how he would have felt in the water, frozen hands lifting me onto a sled, the snap of a crayfish claw? Was that how he would have punished me, a strike that came from a place of protection and love? Would he have been as smooth as the stones, as loud as the stream? Would he have chided or championed my delight in piercing the water's surface, pretending I submerged more than my hands? The creatures seemed to share my delight, urging me to fill my palms with something that would struggle beneath them. The more I did it, the more I wondered. Could those creek dwellers be pieces of the soul my father left behind? Surely his last breath had to have done more than bubble. My mother didn't enjoy that theory. She called it morbid fascination. Her lip curled in disgust. Don't you think there's some kind of life after death? I asked her. You are his life after death, darling. It would be bad to dig any deeper than that. I agreed not to mention it again, but I couldn't agree that it was bad. The deeper I delved into the silt, the closer I felt to him. I had a father in the creek. I felt him. I even heard him as clear as water rushing through reeds. As I stood on the shore, he sang to me. He calmed me and showed a father's concern. Take Take off off your socks, sweet girl. girl. You You don't don't want to ruin them. them. I thought I needed to be close to the water to hear him. But one day, a day that changed my life, I heard his voice from the crabapple grove on the hill. He sounded an alarm from the creek that sent me flying between the trees and down the hill, where a boy's presence stole the air from my lungs. He was in the water, throwing my rocks, crushing my crayfish, and stomping his fat feet through my father's shrieking memory. It was wrong of him. He didn't know it, but ignorance didn't stop me from making him scream. Luckily, the water silenced him nicely. He wasn't smart enough to fear me until his hair was knotted in my fist. By that time, it was too late. He should have been able to overpower me, but my father's encouragement summoned the strength I needed to push him to his knees and force his face underwater. I'd twisted my fingers into the silt many times, but... That was the first time I'd smashed teeth and bone into the riverbed. At that moment, with the wriggling boy in my fatal grasp, I knew I could live a century of life and never love anything so deeply. My father's alarm turned to fanfare, and his pride in me swelled in every bubble of the boy's waning breath. I was eager to watch the intruder fade beneath my fingers, But after digging my other hand into the silt, a tickling sensation distracted me. I released the boy's head, and he fell backwards, coughing up gritty water. I didn't pay attention to his flight from the creek, too captivated by the pearl earring that had tickled my palm. Unearthing it through ribbons of red water, I crinkled my nose in curiosity. Who did it belong to? Why was it inside my father's belly? How long had it been there, waiting? No one believed the boy's story of my assault. Why would they? I was always so calm, so quiet. Like Dad, my mom often said. But he wasn't quiet to me, as if trumpeting my gumption. His volume increased when I plucked three more earrings from the creek. After my father offered me no explanation, I brought the jewelry to my mother I'd never seen someone burst into such sudden tears. She tore the earrings out of my hand and hurled them across the room, screaming a name, followed by a string of profanities. She took a few shots of whiskey and shook herself like a wet dog. Staring at the earrings on the floor, she appeared to pray for the laser vision to incinerate them. Where did they come from? I asked her. She shuddered a sigh. Felicia Moore. Who's Felicia Moore? Oh, she whispered. She's the one who killed your father. When I asked how my father knew her, I expected more tears, but she clenched every muscle, and her jaw moved as if being pried open by a vice. Then, six words creaked out. I imagine they had an affair. I urged her on, But all at once, she softened, smiling as she explained that, despite some indiscretions, my father's conscience wouldn't allow him to cheat on her for long. She laid it on too thick for the story to be more than a mask for the sad truth. But the internet had no need for masks. It was as blunt and encouraging as my father, revealing Felicia Moore's address with little difficulty. As it turned out, She didn't live far from my house. The next day, I rode my bike across town to find the woman who'd had an affair with my father and couldn't keep her jewelry out of my creek. As I waited for her, I chipped away at the paint on her shed. It calmed me, reminding me of digging at the silt in the creek, peeling back the layers to get closer to the golden innards. The young girl on her property was no doubt surprising when she arrived home, But her shock was tenfold when I opened my jewelry-filled palm. She blanched so completely, her green irises paled. She didn't have to ask me who I was or why I was there. She just opened her door, told me to take a seat, and brought me a glass of iced tea. Over the next hour, I heard the whole story. From the moment Felicia first laid eyes on my father to the last one, to minutes after she'd shot him dead. I expected the story of an affair gone wrong. A tale of a jealous mistress, a man trying to be devoted, and my mother caught in the middle. But what I got was worse. Before my father died in our backyard creek, he had a certain appetite he couldn't drown. An appetite for women, mostly. Felicia Moore made that part very clear. But the other aspect of his appetite took her a few tries to clarify. He'd take me to the creek, she whispered. Not right away. It took a little while to convince me. The others, too, I think. But in the end, he always got his way. Even after I knew what waited for me at the creek. I followed him down there like a lovesick puppy. Like a stupid goddamn dog. I assume it was the same for the others. It was obvious she didn't want to tell me the truth. But it was also obvious that she wanted me to know it. I couldn't suppress my building excitement. Talking about the creek cemented my grin, which appeared to make Felicia more uneasy. She told me the rest bluntly, to shock me out of my smile, I suppose. But it didn't work. I stayed serene as she described my father bending her over the stream and his instructions to hold her breath, even when she spoke of him pushing her head underwater while they had intercourse. I didn't crack. I hated doing it, she said, but I loved him. I wanted to make him happy, but sometimes he went too far. He held my head down too long. He scraped my face against the rocks. He got violent. I nodded calmly, which frightened her more. Soon after, she told me to leave. But why did you shoot him? I asked as she ushered me out. She made sure I'd understood everything she'd said. Again, I nodded calmly. May God have mercy on your soul, she whispered, pushed me outside, and locked the door. God? There was no God in the creek. Only Dad and me. Maybe some women with waterlogged lungs, too. I pedaled home with new verve. I needed to get to the stream— and ask my father if everything Felicia Moore had said was true, even if I already knew it in my bones. She'd articulated what I'd felt when the boy had struggled beneath me. And if that desire was in me, it had to have been in Daddy, too. There was so much power in the act, so much passion. It was no wonder he hadn't tried to contain his beautiful violence. Felicia Moore hadn't understood... I doubted any of his women had. But I did. And the more I contemplated, the more I thought, maybe God does exist in the creek. Maybe desire lords us all. Many people disagreed with me, notably the handful of boys who died while I honed my skills. They never reached perfection, unfortunately. While my mind was just as destructive as my father's, I didn't have the practice in coercing my partners to play by my rules and keep their mouths shut. And when the occasional accident occurred, I didn't have the know-how to hide it. It was one of those times a girl really needed her father around. I exercised my desire as best I could, but I couldn't hide my mistakes forever. Missing persons reports piled up before anyone found the bodies in the backwoods. But when Felicia Moore caught wind of the disappearances... She submitted a report about our conversation. It sent the officers straight to my door. My mother battled them at first. But after she heard Felicia's testimony, she had no choice but to believe. After that, the bullet wound was never left out of her husband's history, nor the many women he brought to the house. She sold me up the river, allowing the police to tear our property apart they found more than enough evidence in the silt, but they continued into the woods, sealing my fate with the shallow graves. That was the end for me. It wasn't the loss of freedom I feared, or admitting my sick desires to the world. I just didn't want to be a disappointment to my father. I hadn't tasted half of his fun, and it was already over. Many condemnations fell upon me after my arrest— But I shrugged them off because I expected a certain defense to crawl from the creek and avow my innocence. To declare between the waves of judgment, She is her father's daughter. She is not to blame. But my father didn't speak on my behalf. I was Carrion, before a murder of Crows, and I felt him watching. From the safety of our stream, he laughed at me. You are no daughter of mine. No daughter of mine would get caught. I despised him. The creek, too. I longed to drain the water, pull up the rocks, and watch every minnow drown in oxygen. It was their fault. They'd turned an inkling of compulsion into a full-blown psychosis. True, it was a psychosis I treasured, but that didn't dull my anger. Nor did it comfort my poor mother sitting in the courtroom, listening to the truth about her only child. No one was surprised that she fell along with the verdict. One hour after I was committed for my crimes, my mother died in the creek behind our house. It would have been quicker for her to go with a bullet like my dad, but I suppose she wanted to know what it felt like to be loved in the water, like he had loved so many others. After her death, my anger with my father faded. I no longer wished to punish him for his silence. As another soul trapped in the creek, I figured Mom would do it for me. I even thought that her revenge on him would free me from my unhealthy compulsions. But after many months in the hospital waiting for my cravings to subside, I realized she couldn't help me either. I still desired the creek. But with such sturdy walls keeping me captive, how could I ever think to see that place again? Over the years... The walls of the asylum have lost their stability. They seem like illusions these days. The creek in disguise. I see the crabapple trees before the bank. Sometimes the bank itself. But not the water. Not the minnows. Or any scrap of life to take dear old dad's place. That would be too kind. I realize now that I will never be rid of these compulsions unless I'm proactive. I must take the creek into my own hands. I must face the beautiful monsters to save myself from becoming one. I must dip my face into the water and breathe deep. Even in musing, I am almost there. I smell the stream. I feel soothing splashes and hear my father's voice burbling beyond the bank. No one believes me when I say how close it is. But they will. I'll show the next orderly who comes in just how close my creek can be. I'll show him the water. I'll show him the silt. I'll introduce him to Dad.
2: You know... it's it's a story like that that I almost hate coming out of and saying anything. It's just you end with such a perfect ending, you want to just leave that and, and let the person just ponder that. Right. I mean, and, and if there's if if Jessica has a strength uh,
1: as a short story writer because she's an excellent novelist, mm-hmm. but um, and, and I'm a I'm a total short story junkie kind of guy. Jessica either kills you with the very first line of the story. Or the very last line. Or both in this case. More often than not, she just knocks it out of the park. She's a, just such a great storyteller. And I'm really, really glad that uh, she has been the single author that has appeared in every season and incarnation of The Wicked Library. And, and I would be heartbroken if she didn't do it anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Jessica, so, you know, keep a. Uh, you know, keep, keep penning it for us, because, you know, we love you. Happy Halloween, Jessica. Happy Halloween, Jessica. Hey,
0: where do you think you're going? There's more stories here at the Wicked Library. Stick around, or we'll turn the lights off for good.
2: <laughs> hey there. Do you like legends, myths, and whiskey? Or maybe just one of those things? Then you should listen to the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey Podcast. For more information, head over to legends, myths, and whiskey.com.
0: How many choices do you make in a day? In a year? In a lifetime? How many really matter in the end? Do you agonise over the small ones and avoid the important ones? Here on my lift, in this place where all things are possible, your choice matters. Your choices require sacrifice. Will you make the right one? Choose to listen to the lift in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher and now iHeartRadio.
2: So now I want to move into another story that's from season one. All of these stories are from season one, except for the very first one, but another story from season one by Paul Anderson, love song for the rejected. So why don't you talk a little bit about like why you picked this one originally? What it's, it's kind of a very sweet, sad, I mean, it's, it's, there's an emotional impact. It's not just horror. It's, 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 it's. Tragic. Very much so. I mean, I don't want to spoil the story before people hear it,
1: but <laughs> you're in for a ride, kiddies. You are. Um the the story attracted me the first time I read it. I had been trying to get Paul on the show for for quite a few episodes. I mean, I was mining all of the people that I knew or barely knew to to give shows uh to give stories to the show. Mm-hmm. And when it when it came to Paul's turn, He's like, well, try this story. And he sent me the story and I read it and I, it was just an emotional wallop. Yeah. I'm like, this is, th- this story is amazing. And it was the first, I, I think the first episode, almost at the end of season one, it was like, if, if there's going to be any, uh, huge moment for season one, other than getting more than 20 people to listen to it, it would be this episode. And I, it was the first one where I really kind of upgraded intentionally my my production skills, you know, and I I used music to emphasize it. Um, and it's just such a powerful story. It still is. It's still one of my favorite episodes of all seven seasons of the show. It's just such a good story, and and Nico and Addison just emotionally ring you out by the end of this story. The
2: score is is phenomenal. Yeah, and we have my white whale in this story. My favorite narrator, my favorite voice, Mike Delgadio. Um I met Mike whenever I was at the No Sleep New York They're, they did a tour, obviously, and one of the one of their destination, their stops was in New York. I was up there with uh the hosts of the Ninth Story podcast, Jeanette and Alex. And I got to meet the cast and I got to meet Mike And, um, I was so nervous about asking Mike to narrate a story for the show, which, you know, I mean, the show's done extremely well. We have a lot of listeners, but it's just, it's one of those things where like, even, even whenever you're making something that other people love and we get a lot of great feedback for the show, it's, we all have people that we're fans of too. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, you know, not only is is it great that we were able to get Paul Anderson to agree to let us redo this story? Because I'm a fan of Paul's work, but to be able to get Mike Delgadio to be the the lead narrator and, and handle the male vocals on this, and then also have you know Nico score it and Addison handle the uh, the female vocals, this was something that uh, it was really special when it came together. And you know, I hope that Paul enjoys the final result, or kind of as a tribute to. You know, you and I both being fans of his work, absolutely.
1: And then <laughs> there's that trigger word again. You'll get it later, kids. Um, I think one of the one of the things about Mike's voice is you said it when we started listening to this episode. You said it's like, man, I'd love to have a voice like that. And I'm and I'm thinking in my head, man, I'd love to have a voice like that. It's just, it, it's fantastic. It's so rich. You know, like that kind of timbre. You can't you can't do with, you know, a pack of cigarettes
2: a day. And, you know, it's... (laughs) And it's, I mean, he's so, he uses the tool so well. I mean, it's like, you know, someone that plays the guitar really well, um, you know, it's the same instrument. You know, you can have another voice similar to Mike's, but he knows how to play his voice. And just, you get this, just the emotion that comes through. And whenever, you know, we we found out that we were doing the story, that's like the first thing I was like I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bite the bull and I'm going to ask Mike to narrate nice. this because this story needs his voice and uh, I think it's it's a phenomenal story and I, I'm really proud of the way that it came together so here is Mike Delgadio, Addison Peacock and Paul Anderson's story, Love Song for the Rejected
3: Love Song for the Rejected by Paul Michael Anderson Evelyn's mother died before she could tell her daughter why Evie had a chunk of stained glass embedded in her chest. Now, Evie had no idea there was anything strange about the glass, until her soon-to-be adoptive parents accompanied her to a physical. Both the parents and the pediatrician fainted dead away, startling the five-year-old girl into terrified tears that lasted way after the adults came to. The stained glass was shaped like a cartoon heart between where her breasts would grow, Subsequent x rays showed that the toothpick thin lead canes grew from Evie's ribcage, metal and bone fused as one, with no connection to her real heart. The fingernail sized panes of glass were red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet, arranged randomly and much harder than regular glass. Her mother referred to it as Evie's rainbow heart before she died. There was no mention of it in any medical records. No mention of it from her father, of course, no one even knew who he was. And, of course, no mention of it from her mother, dead of a skull fracture after slipping on black ice as she left yet another disastrous date. Evie didn't turn as Brett walked out, couldn't turn, wouldn't allow herself to turn. Still, the rough slam of the apartment door made her jump. Evie slumped onto the couch and cried, she was no longer the terrified little girl on the examination table. Her corn-color hair had darkened to a polished wood tan, her face heart shaped her blue eyes open and expressive. Evelyn Starling, 26, with a body and personality that drew a lot of attention. Copy editor at Siegel Publishing, living in one of Hathaway's nicer neighborhoods. Heartbroken. Again. She grabbed a Kleenex from the box on the coffee table and blew her nose. It disgusted her. Not the loud foghorn leghorn honk, but how routine all this felt.
4: How is it not routine?
3: She thought, standing up.
4: This is not the first rodeo bowl that's trampled you flat.
3: Too true. Brett. Another link in a long chain of men who offered vague reasons like, It's not you, it's me, while trying to avoid her eyes as much as humanly possible. She swore if she heard that damn reason again, she'd scream until she passed out. Her hand went to her chest. Might as well see the damage now. She moved into her bathroom and, flicking on the light, faced the mirror. Thank God she'd worn waterproof mascara. Her eyes were moist and puffy. The face that lures men in and drives them away, she thought bitterly, shrugging off the burgundy boyfriend jacket and dropped it onto the toilet seat. She wore a silk, white, white tank top underneath. Up close, she could see the upper rim of the latex prosthetic appliance that covered her heart. She pulled the tank top off, slowly, then her bra. She paused a moment, studying the latex appliance. It bothered her that she had to work herself up for this. She gripped the upper edge of the appliance and pulled, feeling the brief tug as the glue came away. Putting the cover down on the edge of the sink, she forced herself to look at her rainbow heart. Each piece of glass was now black. Evie gripped the edges of the sink. What little color had been there this morning, the barest hint of blue in the left curve, the cherry core, was now gone. Blackened. She'd feared this day since she was sixteen when the darkening began, but now she wasn't sure how she was supposed to feel. She didn't feel meaner or colder or indifferent. Her rainbow heart had gone black. Stop the presses.
4: The end of the rainbow, she thought. The stained glass formerly known as my rainbow heart.
3: She was starting to smile when the pain struck. What felt like a wooden stake skewered her through the glass like a bug. She gasped and shuddered, squeezing her eyes closed. Instead of seeing darkness, she saw the palest blue pulsing like starbursts behind her eyelids, near blinding in their brilliance. Her revenge, a rough, guttural voice in her head whispered, barely audible. It's coming. The pain faded, faded, disappeared, leaving behind a tingle in her flesh. Panting, she opened her tear-swollen eyes. Behind her, in the mirror... A black, amorphous shadow, humanoid in the vaguest sense of the word, towered over her. She spun. Nothing but her shadow, thrown by the lights above the mirror. She let out a shaky breath, her hand going to the stained glass. It was warm. For all her laudable attributes, physically stunning, emotionally open, mentally capable, Evie was tragic when it came to love. She had ten years of bad luck, starting when she was 16 and slept with Michael Retker. Oh yes, she knew all the names, all the events, and she ran through them in her head on lonely nights when sleep wouldn't come. She'd dated previously, even fooled around a bit, but Michael was the first. Palms clammy, legs weak, a million thoughts racing through her head, she went to him. She forgot about her rainbow heart. Until afterwards, lying in Michael's room... Michael had spotted the loose edge of the upper portion of the latex appliance. ''Hey, what's this?'' he asked. It was the feel of his fingers on her appliance rather than his voice that jolted her awake. She recoiled, trying to block him, and the movement aided rather than slowed Michael from pulling the cover off. The moment hung, waiting. The sunlight from the window glistened off the stained glass. Michael, frozen with what looked like a chunk of pale flesh in his hand, Evie mortified, covering her chest. His eyes bounced back and forth from her chest to her horrified expression. What? He looked at the appliance in his hand. What? What? Realization dawned in his eyes. What the hell? Still covering her chest, she yanked the appliance away and stumbled from the bed, grabbing her clothes. Michael didn't move, staring where'd she lain, hand half-raised as if still holding the appliance. He blinked rapidly. What? She dressed quickly, shoving the latex appliance in her pocket, fighting tears and the throat-choking mortification. She thought of her adoptive parents fainting dead away, and the tears broke through her small mental barrier. She turned briefly when she reached the door. Michael looked at her the way she imagined an astronaut would view a mind-bending new creature. His mouth hanging open, his eyes flashing how hard his brain was trying to wrap around this. They broke up a week later, via text message, and Michael avoided her eyes whenever they crossed paths. That was when the rainbow heart began fading. She switched to a stronger glue and never let that happen again. Daniel McLaughlin, senior year. He never saw the rainbow heart, but he was gone after three months. Russell McDermott, her freshman year of college. Greg Andrews, while she did her internship at Putnam in New York City. Kyle Marston, her first year after college. The list went on and on. None harmed her. None controlled her. The relationships had been easy, but they all drifted away. Evie's rainbow heart faded with each one, then slowly began to darken at the edges. She knew the dangers of this and feared the day when the heart would become entirely black. But still, she was driven into new relationships, new situations of giving and receiving. It was as if her heart knew the same as her brain, but refused to listen to reason. And she paid for it. She was dressed and sitting on the examination table when Dr. Roberts came back in, chart in hand. He was a burly older man whose trimmed blonde beard was flecked with gray. He leaned against the counter and scanned the chart, flipping up the top sheet to read something beneath. He looked up and smiled. You're fine, Evie. Relax. She let out a long (sighs) breath. Really? He set the chart down on the counter and adjusted his rimless spectacles. I checked the x-rays with past ones. The heart hasn't shifted or changed in any way. There doesn't seem to be any pressure on any organs. You haven't had the same pain since last week, correct?
4: Minor aches.
3: He crossed his arms and sighed. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like you're one of my daughters, Evie. I worry about you. He adjusted his glasses again. Anyway, I can't explain why the glass went black. Or the pain. He straightened. You have pain like you did before, you see me immediately. Otherwise, let's circle back here in a month. Jeannie at the front will make the appointment.
4: So, nothing weird at all?
3: He cleared his throat and checked the chart. Well, one of the x-rays showed a dark spot behind the glass, about the size of a tennis ball, but it was gone in the next shot. That's it. I saved it, just in case, but probably nothing. He smiled warmly towards her. Nothing serious. Her breathing was the only sound in the dark apartment. In Evie's bedroom, the glow of the street lamps outside and her digital alarm clock provided minimal light. Evie lay on her back, topless and asleep in the center of her double. The latex appliance between her breasts flickered, then began to glow. It grew in intensity. Lines of sky-blue light edged around the seams. Evie, still asleep, grimaced and moaned. It came from her mouth, but sounded like the grunt of a great animal. After a while, it dimmed, then went out. She felt a twinge in her chest when the new mailroom clerk, with the easy, self-conscious smile, passed her glass-wall office. She looked away, clenching her fists to either side of her computer keyboard. Three weeks since Brett walked out in the first burst of pain, and already? She shook her head. She'd seen the mail clerk twice so far this week, delivering packages throughout the department, his hair the same color as hers and indifferently tousled and that easy, self-conscious smile. She wondered idly if she'd had any packages today. She lightly hit the edge of her desk with her fists. No, damn it.
4: Besides, what happens with my glass now? She thought. It's already black and causing me pain.
3: She turned back to the manuscript on her computer and The legal pad on her desk was already filled with jotted notes, complaints, and questions, and she was only 100 pages in. Her eyes drifted back to the glass wall. The clerk was talking to Pam from payroll, and Pam was obviously laying it on thick. She felt a twinge in her chest that had nothing to do with her glass heart. She looked away and forced herself to focus on the manuscript, her hand absently going to wear the stained glass beneath her blouse and rubbing. It was luck that put her and the clerk in the same elevator alone together a week later. No hair? She'd asked. Light, easy, a good conversation starter. The clerk jumped the slightest bit, surprised. Um, yeah, yeah, I am. Mailroom, me, low man on totem pole. Evie laughed.
4: (laughs) Everyone's low man at one point or another.
3: The clerk's smile was less self-conscious now, but just as cute as before. Don't you have an office? I can't see you being the low man of anything.
4: I've got a live one here,
3: she thought. Evie smiled and offered her hand.
4: Evelyn, Starling. In spite of the office, I'm just a copy editor.
3: The clerk shook with her. Peter McDonald, in spite of my package cart, I really want to get the hell out of the mailroom and be a copy editor. Evie laughed. <laughs> Listen, Peter said. You uh want to get some coffee? Evie's smile widened. Sure. Peter stopped at a corner florist on his way to Evie's apartment and bought a bouquet. It was cliché and done a thousand times, but the urge overcame him, and Peter often followed his urges. Walking down the well-lit avenue, he checked the address Evie had given him on the back of her card. Not far. It was ten after six, and they'd have plenty of time to make their reservations. Dinner, of course, another cliché and done a thousand times thing. The street was lined with bright shops and boutiques. Couples, young and old, walked, enjoying the cool October evening as the sun sank, staining the sky purple. This was his first time really walking through Hathaway since moving here, and he found he liked it, almost as much as he liked Evie. She was easy to talk to. He found himself revealing things that he never would have revealed to someone he'd just met, such as the fear that crawled up his throat his first night here. Evie was empathetic and relatable, telling her own horror stories. It was the perfect give and take in a situation that demanded awkward conversation. But for all her empathy, all her easygoing nature, he sensed something darker within her. Not necessarily bad, but Peter hadn't had to awaken all his brain cells to figure out this woman hadn't been very lucky with men. It was in her gaze, her quickness to fill the silences. Peter knew a thing or two about that. Past girlfriends who'd been kind called him a hopeless romantic. The not-so-kind called him a loser. With a spring in his step, Peter went to the stoop and pressed the buzzer for Evie's apartment. Three dates later, Peter slid out from under the blankets and padded naked into the dark living room. He felt for his cigarettes and his jacket on the couch and sat down. The flame was bright enough for him to blink the click of the spinner wheel obscenely loud in the early morning silence. "'Oh, man, Peter,' he thought, exhaling. "'Oh, shit.' He hadn't planned on this. When it came to sex, he was hopelessly passive, but he'd be lying to say he hadn't dearly wanted it. It took more than a little willpower not to grin like a fool. Fire burned across his nerves, roared vibrantly through his gut. It had all been so smooth— Like their dating, nothing felt forced or awkward. Natural, give and take. His assessment that Evie knew the dark side of relationships had been borne out, of course. On their second date, she'd apologized ahead of time if she acted distant. She'd just gotten out of a relationship that had not ended well. The conversation recurred to him, and for the first time, he thought of how odd that was. Who said things like that on a second date? For the moment, he felt as if he were not alone in the room. The specters of old boyfriends crowded in on him, pressing him down, staring. He wished he could meet the ghosts of boyfriends past, if only to say, You morons. As Peter smoked, Evie slept contentedly on her side. The top sheet lay puddled around her bare waist, the bedsheet wrinkled into sand dune waves. The stained glass behind the latex appliance glowed pale blue. Its illumination transformed the tousled bedsheet into a barren, alien landscape. Evie stirred, the light rippling across the bed. Low, barely audible, she moaned that vaguely inhuman sound. The light was gone before Peter came to bed. Time passed. Six weeks' worth. They stayed in, went out. Saw plays, stand-up comedians, readings, movies, bands, hung around each other's apartment. They took a weekend and went to the Poconos, going Dutch because Peter couldn't afford to pay for both, but refused to have her pay all. They ate Thai, Chinese, Indian, fast food, Italian, German, Korean, and Japanese. They were not clingy, they were not distant. They, in their fifth week, opened a Netflix account together. As Christmas approached, they made plans on visiting his parents. Then, as the days drew down to the end of the year, it changed. Peter got off the bus at his corner and headed for his building, feeling like a soldier spiriting through enemy territory. Christmas decorations hung listlessly from shops in the cold, gray day. Snow had fallen two days ago, and brown sludge clogged the curbs, People, bundled tightly, hustled here to there, watching their feet. He kept his mind on automatic until he let himself into his loft apartment. Then, in the empty kitchen, he asked disgustedly, ''What in the hell is wrong with me?'' This was the first time in two months he and Evie hadn't seen each other for two consecutive days. Usually they shared a day's break, but never two. Evie had asked if he wanted dinner as they left work, and a panic had seized him. A chest-clutching panic that sent flashing red messages into his brain. Get away. Get away now. So, he fibbed, saying he needed to call family and friends back home. With a hard squeeze around Evie's waist, he said he had a lot to talk about. She giggled and let him go, and, goddammit, he felt relieved to be getting on the bus. He went over to the couch and plopped down, confusion wrinkling his face. Why the hell did I do that? No answers, but recently, he'd felt stifled. Suddenly, Evie's intellect felt intimidating. Her motivation left him disillusioned about his own career path. Her beauty made him feel as if she'd plucked him from the stall next to the wet-brained geek at the freak show. Only when he was alone, when he was away, did he feel normal again. He felt them back there, behind him, the ghosts of Boyfriend's past. He wanted to spin around, see them in their pale blue forms as he pictured them, and asked them, Why? Why did you leave? She knew it was a dream as soon as she saw her mother sitting on the rock in the otherwise barren and arid landscape. Far in the distance, sharp-peaked mountains, like taloned fingers, accused a sky the ugly shade of a bruise. Her mother wore the dress she was buried in. Her dark hair blended into the wide straps.
4: He's going to leave you, she said. He has no choice. The promise will be
3: kept. Beneath her bare feet, Evie could feel thick granules of hot sand. She looked down and saw she was completely nude. The stained glass was a heart-shaped black hole in her chest.
4: Justice must be brought... Her mother went on. He will leave. And your heart's transformation will be complete.
3: Evie approached.
4: Peter won't leave.
3: Her mother looked up as Evie approached, and Evie saw how witch like her mother was.
4: My beautiful, smart, talented daughter. More than I ever could be. Too beautiful. Smart. And talented. That was part of the promise. You'll drive them away, and it'll feed. It needs to come. It needs to be born. This needs to happen. I'm sorry, honey.
3: Her voice grew more growling with each repetition. Evie stumbled back. As she did, the stained glass shot out a ray of pale blue. It burned the edges of her skin. Evie squawked. The black irises of her mother's eyes seeped out of its circle and enveloped the white. Her mother's eyes began to glow with the same light as the glass. She lurched towards Evie, her eyes widening and distorting, becoming monster eyes. The glow brightened, obscuring her mother's shape, and it seemed she grew more hulking, less human, Becoming the monster Evid glimpsed in the mirror.
4: Ah. Uh, I'm sorry, but it's inevitable, honey, she croaked. I will have my revenge. For you as well as me. We love and we pay and they never do. Shouldn't they be punished? You are my sacrifice and monument when it's born
3: evie felt sudden pain rip through her chest as if an invisible hand had slammed through the stained glass and she sat up in bed screaming evie pawed at the glass heart but it was cool to the touch just another minor ache she fell back against the padded headboard panting her eyes blinked rapidly in the darkness distantly she heard a car alarm Her mother's voice whispered in the center of her head.
4: He's going to leave you. I will have my revenge.
3: She slumped further into bed, holding her heart.
4: I can't go on like this,
3: she thought. Her fingers traced the edge of the stained glass. She thought of removing the heart, not the first time, and shook her head. God, how could someone remove something fused to her bone? For better or worse, she was stuck in the passenger seat to this thing. My mother. And the best she could do was withstand it. Sleep was a long time coming, and she couldn't let go of the stained glass.
4: Long time no see, stranger,
3: she said as Peter opened the passenger door and climbed in.
4: What is this, the first date in a week?
3: Hey, babe. A quick brush of his lips against her cheek. They felt like paper. She pulled into traffic and headed west, towards the setting sun, out of town.
4: What'd the reviews say about this movie?
3: He shrugged, staring through the windscreen. Forgot to look. She looked at him, her brow furrowing.
4: You all right, Peter?
3: He glanced at her. She saw something in his eyes, but couldn't place it. Tired, babe. It's nothing. Her stained glass heart started to ache. She heard her mother say,
4: I'm sorry, honey.
3: Peter, to his credit, lasted another two weeks. The littlest, stupidest things got on his nerves. The way she spoke when she hadn't completely swallowed a mouthful of food, her light, airy snores, the way she kept her pubic hair, things that no sane man in a million years would have a problem with, drove him absolutely insane. He recognized this and restrained every biting remark, every insult. Every question that isn't a question that wanted to simply leap from his mouth. He spent the night before he broke up with Evie getting cataclysmically drunk. He raised his glass of amber liquor at the television and slurred, Here's to me, the stupidest bastard that ever entered a relationship. He drank. It tasted like guilt and banked fires. He grabbed the bottle off the table, topped off his glass and drank. Repeat. Repeat. His head thumped the next day, and every joint felt filled with broken glass. His hands shook, his mouth tasted like a baby dragon's used diaper. Evie, sweet, too-perfect Evie, noticed. He said he hadn't slept well. She shouldn't have accepted that. The contradiction was his physical form, but she did. Periodically on the drive home, he saw her wince as if in pain. He didn't dawdle when they got to her place, couldn't dawdle. He knew he was making absolutely the worst mistake of his life, but also knew it had to be done. Like a spoonful of awful cough syrup, clench your fists and do it quickly. So when she got up from the couch to go change out of her work clothes, he made himself sit up. Evie, she turned. He swallowed. We have to talk. He saw her eyes darken, as if knowing what was coming. Still, she came and sat down in the scrolled wingback chair next to the couch. As she did, she winced again. Every word a hard little bullet. Peter began to speak. The stained glass began to ache as soon as she sat down. In her head, she heard her mother say,
4: I'm sorry, but it's inevitable.
3: I... Peter said, swallowing hard, looking at the floor. He repeated, dry-washing his hands, which shook. He said he'd slept badly. She'd smelled whiskey, but said nothing. I don't know how to start. He licked his lips. I can't do this anymore, Evie.
4: Why, though?
3: She asked. The words felt jerked out of her. She thought back to when she'd first seen him.
4: What happens to my glass now? I can't take this
3: and the ache in her chest grew sharper. Peter looked at her and saw tears in her eyes. You're so perfect, honey, but it's its not you. Not really. It really is me. Stop it! She yelled.
4: Don't tell me that, Peter. They always tell me that. What is it that drives you away?
3: Peter looked as if he'd been slapped. His mouth worked. That's just… that's just it, Evie. You're doing nothing. It's me. I… She looked down at her knees, pressed together tightly. She clenched her teeth hard enough to hurt her gums. It felt like the pain in her stained glass was digging in, trying to get to her real heart. She remembered her mother saying,
4: He will leave, and your heart's transformation will be complete.
3: And then the pain exploded in her glass heart. Her hands spasmed open and she grabbed her chest, crying ah! out. She heard Peter calling. Evie? What is it? She saw the rays of blue light highlighting her knees, the edge of the coffee table. She looked down and saw the stained glass glowing a cold, pale blue through the latex appliance. Her top, her fingers. Peter, his voice terrified. What's happening? What's... She lurched from the chair and stumbled through the archway and into the bathroom, slamming the door and, in an unconscious move, locked it. Peter's mind was a hurricane of half-thoughts and unspent emotions. Blue light! Her chest glowed blue light! Her! He scrambled from the couch, knocking over the coffee table, and dashed after her. From behind the bathroom door, he heard her screaming. He threw himself at the door. His heart slammed into his breastbone. Evie, he screamed as she screamed. Let me in, Evie! She wouldn't stop screaming. He thought he heard and immediately took only one way, her shriek.
4: Get away, Peter! Away!
3: He threw his shoulder into the door and heard a crack. The pain clawed and chewed, digging into her chest, melting her nerves into one shrieking ball of red. She tore her top off, then her bra. She ripped the appliance away, feeling the heat of the stained glass beneath. The pale blue glow of the black heart's light blasted out, hot and blinding. But the pain didn't abate. Instead, it grew bolder, becoming a pagan god yearning for her suffering supplication. Its edges blistered the flesh around it. Evie, screaming, dug at the stained glass, ignoring the sizzle as her fingertips burned, just trying to do anything to stop the pain, to stop the pain right now. She thought of her mother in the coffin, her mother sitting on the rock, her mother saying,
4: ''We love, and we pay, and they never do. Shouldn't they be punished?'' ''You did this to me.''
3: Evie thought as her nails snapped and bled against the glass, the droplets sizzling.
4: You did this to me.
3: Peter's shoulder slammed into the bathroom door again and the lock snapped. The door shuttered open as Evie stumbled away towards the bathtub, topless and digging at the glowing heart-shaped thing in her chest. Evie! He bellowed and started forward. He froze as the light touched him. His momentum, his strength, his will drained away. At that instant, he was filled with such self-loathing that a part of him wanted to gouge out his eyes. God, how could he do this to her? What right did he have? Evie, he breathed, and Evie, crying, looked up as the tiny panes of black glass cracked as one. In her final moment, Evelyn Starling looked at Peter and saw the pain in his eyes, the concern, and, most of all, His love, all right there, within reach. Evie, he whispered, frozen. She felt her black heart crack. The pain lessened for the briefest moment. The panes of glass shattered and the pale blue light burst forth unrestrained, giving substance to what had been feeding on her pain and loss to her mother's revenge. The creature had needed and wanted one thing from Evie's mother to do this a womb, a place for its birth in the world, a place to gain substance, and her mother had given it Evie. The final burst of pain came so full and complete it rocketed through every nerve in Evie's body. Darkness crowded her vision. She fell away out of the blue and into the black, thinking of Peter, In the last moment of his life, Peter MacDonald, hopeless, romantic to some, loser to others, saw the blue light envelop Evie, but not before he saw her own light go out of her eyes, leaving before him the mind-bending thing that had resided and fed in Evelyn Starling's chest. Its vaporous black form hulked over him, sucking him in its blazing blue eyes. Its visage was obscured by the blue light it emitted, and for that Peter was grateful. To actually see it, he knew, would have fractured his mind in an instant. The floor creaked under the weight as it took form. The thing approached, fed all these years by the pain of Evelyn Starling, birthed by the scorned anger of her mother, hungry for much, much more. It would repay their pain. Its pale blue phosphorescence engulfed Peter MacDonald. And Peter MacDonald's death, the first of many lost loves that long, long night, was brief because his last thought was of Evie.
2: So that was a great story, and this one, kind of like the the next one, this one uh, was a revenge piece. This, in this case, mother's revenge. This next story. I got to warn you folks, there's a reason it's the last story. (laughs) See Brian Brown, my, my brother. I love him. And this story speaks to me. I'm not a parent. Nelson, you're a parent. I am. I have to think that as a parent, if something like what happens in this story happened to your child, he'd be goddamn tempted to, to have a solution similar to this
1: well i'll tell you I, I i i've been uh friends with uh mr brown for for quite some time and when i asked him to send me i'm like i i want to I, I love your work send me three stories the old the old standby kids used to be you send me three stories and i would pick one and this was the th- it always happens by the third story it's like okay that's the one and this was the third story that i'd read and I sat there for quite a long time. I'm like, okay, this is episode seven. Do we want to go here yet? Yeah. And the answer came back immediately in my head. Going, oh hell yeah! And it's a dark. It's a dark story. Um, it
2: is the uh, Wicked Library. It
1: is the Wicked Library. As, as I used to be fond of saying in really sensitive stories, it's not the Sweet Pickles Library. It's the Wicked Library, right. and. Uh, th- this story read by Mister Feudic here. Uh, this is a real, it- it's a real churner. You know, it's a it- it's a paradise for for those who enjoy voice acting skill. And you know, Dan serves it up awesome. I get I give you mad props. Well, thank you. And reading this story as a parent uh, is a lot different than reading it when you're not a parent. But you you nail. All of the all of the stuff that needs to be hit. It's a really wrenching story, and if you're a parent and you're listening to the show, you'll you'll get it and you'll you'll love it, and you'll still cringe like everybody else. But it's a really effective story. Chris just murdered this story. It's awesome.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't really like giving trigger warnings. I'm not a fan of them because there are no trigger warnings in real life. But this is a sensitive topic. Um, This is a father's revenge story, and without giving too much away, imagine yourself in a situation where you've had the worst thing possible happen to your child, and the person who perpetrated this act gets away with it, and how would you feel in that situation, and what lengths would you go to in order to balance the scales of the universe? And I think that tells you all that you need to know without me giving too much away. If that's too much for you, happy Halloween. <laughs> it's been fun. Um, it, but, you know, I do encourage you to give this story a shot. Chris is a great author. This is a well-written story. Uh, I did my best to do it justice in terms of performance. But I certainly understand if you want to check out at this point, if you, if you get what I'm pointing at, and uh, that might be a little too much for you. Happy Halloween. But uh, for those of you who are wicked enough to hang on, this is C. Brian Brown with Cruel and Unusual. Cruel and Unusual by C. Brian Brown. The man stared down at his desk and sighed. His fingers tapped a staccato rhythm on the blotter like a horde of pencil drummers playing Beethoven. Documents that needed his notes, signature, whatever. They all danced under this rapid beat. He cared nothing for them, and never would again. How can I, he thought. Caring, as human as apple pie was American, seemed a fool's game. A folly sought after by poets and romantics. Life wasn't soft and fluffy, or round and rubber-edged. It consisted of right angles, square edges, and isosceles triangles sharp enough to cut deep and bring out the heart's blood. Life, when examined under the microscope of pros and cons, wasn't worth shit. The pain far outweighed the pleasure. He sneered. Maybe he, Ronald Crawford, was the monster, and not Munson. He'd find out in an hour or so when they met for the first time. Vengeance, like survival, was part of the human condition. When hurt, we retaliated. Instinct pushed men where logic couldn't or wouldn't. And Ronald was, if no longer a husband or a father, at least still human. Every gust of wind against his flesh was a razor-thin cut, Every lie heard a screwdriver into his brain. Every kiss an ashen excavation of his mouth. He felt primordial. And these feelings overrode sensibility. He believed it was in this place, with these emotions, that the species called man had begun. And, while the fate of the human race was obscure, he was certain it would be where He ended. His phone issued a jangling cry and he jerked, backhanded by the sound. He looked at the offending noisemaker, recognized his home phone number in the identification display, and pursed his lips. It was his wife, Sybil. There was no one else it could be, unless she'd finally killed herself and the police were using his home phone to notify him that would be a real problem and he debated not answering at all. It would be just like her to throw a wrench into his plans by usurping them with some grand scheme of her own. The ringing continued to mock him with its shrill cry so like her voice that he knew she wasn't dead. Just the same old sanctimonious bitch. It might be easier after today if she was dead but that would be her cross to bear. He picked up the receiver and said hello. It's me, she said. Ronald wanted to scream, no shit, Sherlock, I thought it was Danny calling, but held his tongue and waited for her to continue. She always continued. Will you be home for dinner, she asked his silence. Her voice, once soft and demure, even sexy, was now weak and lifeless. No, he replied. I have to work late and finish that report for Bob. Sibyl made a sound like a bullfrog and the line went dead. Ronald stared at the receiver for a moment before replacing it in the cradle. He slid the papers on his desk into a neat stack and stuffed them into a manila folder. He deposited the whole mess into the trash can. Bob's report among them his hands found a pencil snapped it in half then repeated the process still not satisfied he broke a third and brushed all the pieces into the trash can on top of the paperwork Ronald stood and moved around the desk paced to the far wall did an about face came back made a precision turn stalked to another wall He kept his arms crossed over his chest like a bulletproof vest and fingernails gouged the flesh of his sides where he held on. Finally, he made his way to the closet near his personal bathroom. Being the chief financial officer of a Fortune 500 company and independently wealthy provided many perks in his life most of which he'd used in order to arrange for his afternoon meeting. Upon opening the closet, the smell of wood stain assaulted, and he snorted it away, then picked up the blue nylon gym bag on the floor. It was big enough to be used as a carry-on bag, and Ronald had used it often in that capacity. It swung at his side, thick as an anvil. He grunted. He didn't remember it being so heavy this morning, but time changed all things. There might have been the softest clank from inside, but he paid no attention to the sound. Ronald stared at his reflection in the full-length mirror attached to the inside of the door. His face, once full and fat from beef and wine, looked ghoulish. The skin stretched tight over jutting cheekbones, eyes little more than steel pits outlined in black. His hair, once the color of the sun, looked like stringy, wet straw. The designer's suit jacket hung in folds at the shoulders, and the cuffs extended so far they almost covered his fingers. Now he understood why people had been inquiring about his health. I look like a Romero throwback, he thought, and laughed. A phlegmatic and humorless sound. The cough of a dying man. It wasn't far from the truth. He left the office, not bothering to turn off the light. He was only vaguely aware of his secretary talking, asking him if everything was alright. Ronald ignored her and walked toward the elevator that would take him to the parking garage. People moved to the side when he approached. They whispered and pointed. He ignored them all. And he remembered.
0: You'll laugh at me, Dad.
2: Danny had said and looking at his son, Ronald thought it was quite possible. Sybil had put pink highlights in his blonde locks for a crazy hair day in his kindergarten class. Just ignore them, he told his son.
0: What if someone pushes me? What then, Dad?
2: Ronald grimaced at what was, in essence, the bastard question of fatherhood. He didn't know whether to tell his son it was okay to fight, or if he should give the standard platitude that Fighting was never the answer, and no one ever won in a fight. Danny had watched him, and with each passing second, the boy's face fell more and more. Ronald was taking too long to answer. Parents were supposed to know the answers, the right ones, without thinking. It was scripture. It was their job to make everything all right. He'd realized when Danny was just a toddler, the kids were sensitive and knew when adults were lying, and didn't really know their ass from a hole in the ground. Ronald said, You push him back, Daniel. Ronald reflected as he started his car. It was unfortunate Danny's built-in lie detector wasn't as fine-tuned as he thought. He had the car up to almost 40 when he hit the exit of the parking garage and burst out onto the street with a short bark of rubber on asphalt. The sun drove spikes into his eyes, made them tear up. The energy warmed his cold skin, and the nerves tingled with joy. It was a pure sensation, uncontrollable, and he fought against it. How could he feel joy? Why should he feel joy? The sun was beautiful and warm, a radiant star that gave life to everything that basked in it. The sky, painted a crystalline blue by the hand of someone's god, stretched on forever with torn cotton clouds thrown in, as if for texture. Ronald looked at the scene through the window of his car and beat his fist on the steering wheel. The sudden brightness offended him. The horn conveyed Ronald's rage to the outside world like a warning siren until the steering wheel cracked under the fleshy pummeling.
0: Motherfucker!
2: He screamed at the sun.
0: Cock sucker!
2: He jabbed first one middle finger at it, and then the next. Silence stole in on Ronald, and he blinked, swiped at his eyes with the back of an arm. Danny should have seen this perfect, gorgeous day. Ronald screamed again, hating the quiet as much as he did the sun, and leaned forward in the seat until his chest pressed against bleached knuckles. The veins in his neck bulged and the blood pounded through his head like a runaway jackhammer. Emotion surfeited. He reclined back and drove the rest of the way to his destination in silence, blocking out all thoughts of Danny. He wanted to save them for later. He turned his attention to Sybil. At the end of the day... She'd been much more affected than he. Their marriage was over long before they'd had Danny, but the boy gave them common ground again. He was something for them to focus on that was theirs, other than the relationship. Everyone benefited, especially Danny. He had two rich parents to lavish attention and money on him, and they both loved him. He wasn't just another possession they fought over. Ronald knew Sybil had turned into a spoiled rich bitch over the course of their union, but he'd never known the depth to which she went until two days ago when they'd attended Munson's appeal hearing. The prosecutor had asked Ronald to speak, and he had. He'd prepared an elegant speech, and why not? Munson had taken Danny from them, and since he'd failed to save his son in life, very least he could do was protect him in death. Munson's lawyer argued that the use of a lethal injection would be a cruel and unusual punishment, that it would be more humane to put a single bullet in the man's head or hang him in public. The lawyer cited the 1972 ruling on the case of Furman versus Georgia, the inadequate research into whether or not lethal injections were actually painless. How can anyone know how painful it is when they never wake up to tell us, he demanded of the jury. And then there was his client's age, 78, and Munson's extensive history of drug use, which compounded his previous argument about the injection's supposed pain-free trip to the afterlife. No one could verify if Munson's body had any tolerance to the mixture or if, like in the 2006 with Joseph Clark in Ohio, the used veins would refuse to cooperate and delay the execution. The lawyer had looked at the judge, asked him how he'd feel laying on a cold table knowing death was coming and coming and coming. When the judge overturned the death sentence, Ronald felt a bleak coldness at the top of his head that momentarily paralyzed all thought, as if the same god that had painted the sky had snapped his fingers and said, Thou shalt not think. The man that had killed his son was going to get to live out his remaining years in jail. And what was worse, Ronald would have to pay for that not only in grief and rage but monetarily through his taxes each year the son of a bitch continued to live the devil's ire melted the ice that had encased him and he leapt to his feet screamed obscenities at Munson, his lawyer the judge he was out of control and knew it he was helpless to stop it And even if he could, he didn't want to. Stop it, Sybil had yelled, grabbing him by the arm. Stop it, Ronald. You're embarrassing me. He'd focus his rage on her until the court officer dragged him away. Ronald spent most of the night sobbing. Two cells away, Munson snored. Secure in the knowledge, he would live. When the tears dried, Ronald sat on his cot and stared at Munson's back. He had plenty of money, enough to buy off whomever he needed, like the driver of the prisoner bus. When they let him out in the morning, Ronald wasted no time liquidating his assets. They'd be moving Munson from the holding cells to the penitentiary in a few days, and everything would need to be in place. Ronald moved financial mountains for a living, and arranging a little tete a tete wasn't difficult. The brakes squealed like a dying pig, and the tires grated the gravel of the hotel parking lot when Ronald, still speeding, turned in. He yanked the wheel, veered the car toward the room he'd rented, and the car spat a nimbus cloud of dust from underneath. He retrieved the gym bag and got out. He didn't bother locking the doors, and left the keys in the ignition. The room was of the 34 99 a night variety, the kind rented by teenagers when they wanted to get drunk and fuck. The lights were off. Ronald had given instructions to keep the air conditioning on full blast. It was the best way to preserve meat. It was money well spent, since his instructions had been followed to the letter. He locked the door behind him and turned on the lights. The old, naked man, handcuffed to the chair, blinked in the sudden glare, looked at Ronald. His head jerked from side to side in recognition. He neck-twisted and craned, an erratic motion that reminded Ronald of a distressed fish. Hello, Munson, Ronald said, and smiled. He tossed the bag onto the bed. He couldn't ignore the metallic clank this time, and it dawned on him that he was looking forward to what came next. I am a monster, he thought. Ronald sat close to the bag as he unzipped it. He took his time, letting the soft sound of clicking teeth fill the empty space between them. Munson thrashed, but the handcuffs and the leg irons prevented him from knocking the chair over. The ball gag kept his screams to muted bleats. The image of a wounded fish swam into Ronald's mind again, only this time he saw himself as a shark homing in on the signals. The scent of blood. His teeth gnashed ground together in anticipation before a smile split his face wide, almost unhinged his jaw. He cackled, his merriment from a moment ago turning into something near pure, unadulterated joy. Is this what you felt with my Danny? Ronald wondered. Ronald found to mix feelings of disgust and excitement that murder was a sexual act. He was erect, ready to get it on maybe he would fucking monster he muttered Munson began to cry the tears leaked from the old man's eyes and gathered at the top of the ball gag formed a small lake under his nose Ronald continued to smile at the man who had murdered his son he wasn't referring to Munson but felt no great urgency to inform the old man of that He produced four items from the bag, a seven-inch length of pipe, a serrated steak knife, a four-gallon plastic trash bag, and a roll of blue painter's tape. The first three came from his home, and the fourth he'd picked up the day he got out of jail. He put each one on the bed, where Munson could see. He left two items in the bag that were for his personal use after he'd finished with Munson. You raped and murdered my son, Ronald said. You were caught, convicted, and sentenced to die. I don't know what drove you to appeal the death sentence. Was it arrogance? Fear? Some other fucked up thought floating around in your head. Whatever the reason, I want you to know, I don't care. Cruel and unusual. You took my Danny's life. You separated me from the only thing I loved in this world. That was cruel and unusual. Now, I'm going to take your life. It's the only thing you seem to care about. And it's the only thing I have left take you will never again see the sun or hear the birds sing you will never feel the wind on your face if you're a believer in God you'll want to begin your bullshit litany of save me prayers now Ronald watched as Munson cried harder snot ran from the man's nose This mingled with the salty rivers of his tears to create a mucus meringue that clogged his nostrils above the gag in his mouth. His breaths were little more than hitch-stuttered snorts. He put a hand on the tools, patted, and stroked them like a beloved pet. He thought of removing the gag to help Munson breathe. But the man would scream. Munson was a pussy. And that's what pussies did. They screamed in the face of terror. Munson knew what was coming. Ronald saw that on the old man's face. He wanted to tell Munson that he had no sympathy, only rage. Munson needed to know that Ronald's heart, once soft and full of love for one little boy, was now closed, diamond-hard. The organ was a three-ton stone in his chest. Ronald needed to open it, or he'd go crazy. He needed to feel something other than rage. Ronald sucked in a great breath. It was time. He withdrew a key ring out of his pocket, knelt down, and unlocked the leg irons that kept the killer shackled to the chair. Munson jumped up, and Ronald grabbed him by the upper arms. The old man was no match for Ronald's age or his strength, which was doubled with fury. Munson's skin felt thin and soft, like notebook paper that had been crumpled and straightened a thousand times. Ronald squeezed until he felt his thumb pressed down against hard bone, and Munson whimpered some inhuman dog sound through the gag. Ronald spun Munson slammed his face onto the top of the dresser, left his naked ass hanging in the air. Is this how you had to do it, Munson? Did my Danny fight? Or had you already put the bag over his head so he didn't know what was coming? From the bits of plastic they found in the cut, you saw it right through the bag when you were done, didn't you? He smacked Munson on the back of the head, tangled a hand in his hair rammed the old man's face back down on the wood. Ronald wanted to do it again and again until he held nothing but soggy, pulped-up fruit in the palm of his hand. But breathing deep, with the images of Danny in his head, he stopped. Without letting go, he reached backward, picked up the plastic trash bag and draped it over Munson's head. He cinched it at the neck and sealed it with the painter's tape. The bag rustled as Munson made each breath with a controlled action. "Don't worry, Munson," Ronald said. "You'll be dead long before you run out of air." Ronald's fingers closed around the cold pipe, and the chill sprinted from his hands to his elbows, threatened to freeze his jolts in place to stop him from having his vengeance. In this last moment of rationalization, his mind tried to snap his senses back into something normal and coherent. He took a deep breath, teetering there between human and not. Between the bright and loving world, and the black, unending abyss, when he heard his son's sweet laughter ringing in his ears. Heard his voice screaming,
0: Hi your Daddy.
2: The memory of that day on the swings bowled into his senses. It made Ronald ache at the center of his being. Danny had soared that day. All children should soar. His son would never soar again. The numbing cold disappeared, and with a strangled cry, the pipe went first. He had to follow Munson's order which started with kidnapping and terrorizing his victims. Then, the rape. Munson tried to howl as he was violated, the sound little more than a sigh through the rubber gag. His body jerked and thrashed as he redoubled his efforts to get away. Ronald pushed his knees into the backs of the old man's legs, kept a hand on the back of his head, and drew the pipe out shoved it forward again, screaming, Is this how you did it, huh? You sick prick! Is this the way you did it? The pressure eased, and Ronald's hand ran into Munson's flesh. He pulled back, saw blood between his fingers. It was liquid fire, and he flung it away. He cursed at Munson and picked up the knife. This blade had been used to cut Danny's peanut butter and grilled cheese sandwiches, to strip away tape on the boxes of his games, to slice through those offending plastic ties that kept his superheroes locked in their packages. Ronald wondered if Munson's knife had come from his drawer, freshly washed from a dutiful night of cutting up chicken or steak. Was it a family heirloom, passed down from generation to generation? The cops never found the actual knife, but it matched the serrations on Danny's throat to a set in Munson's kitchen. Ronald laughed without humor. A fucking steak knife. It was light, flimsy, but sturdy enough to slit the throat of a helpless child halfway to the spine. It wouldn't be that way going after skin toughened by almost eight decades of life. He'd have to saw back and forth like those fucking terrorists did on that bird guy. That's what it'd be like. And that was fucking cruel and unusual. No one should die like that. And he thought, here I am. Heartless. Monster. Munson's back rose and fell with his pained breathing. The ridged mountain of his spine curved and jutted skyward. Blood streaked down the backs of his legs and pooled like water hitting a dam at his feet. I'm no more a monster than Munson, rationalized Ronald. He reached down, took a handful of hair again, pulled the head back. Munson tried to twist out of Ronald's grasp, Just like in the courtroom, the man wanted to deny the truth of what he'd done. Didn't want to face the consequences of his actions. I'm going to tell you something. You might find it humorous, Ronald whispered into the old man's ear, licking the lobe through the plastic with the tip of his tongue. I used to tell my son, when he broke the rules, that I didn't like to discipline him, but he had to man up. Take his punishment and be done with it. It's time for your punishment, Munson. And then, mine. And if I was being honest, I never liked punishing him. But I'm enjoying punishing you. Now, take it like a fucking man. He leaned forward and went to work with the knife. Once done, Ronald looked down at the crimson life that flowed from Munson's hacked neck to the dresser, ran reckless, like a river that succeeded its flood stage, to the edge, and waterfalled from there to join the growing pool on the puke-tan carpet. He looked down at the phallic length of pipe that protruded from the man's anus. His eyes roamed the sallow skin at the small of Munson's back, admired the road map of wrinkles there that extended up between the shoulder blades to disappear under the blue tape. He spit on the man's corpse. Fuck you, he said. You're a piece of shit. Ronald hoped that wherever Munson's soul had gone, whether it be heaven, hell, or just standing right next to him in all its ectoplasmic glory, was as pissed off as he was. He hoped that Munson now understood just what cruel and unusual meant. That he now knew it wasn't an escape clause. And while the fear of death could make one contrite, it couldn't assuage the hearts of the scorned. It couldn't bring back the dead. And it wasn't nearly powerful enough to replace that thing called love. God, if that all-knowing entity existed may forgive in the end, but the human heart did not. Reaching into his gym bag, Ronald pulled out the other two items he'd brought. The first was a photograph of Danny and Sybil standing together on the sidewalk outside their house. Mother and son were smiling. Danny carried a backpack hanging off one arm. It was almost bigger than him, and it had scraped along the ground as he walked, Ronald had taken the picture on Danny's first day of kindergarten. It had been a good day and happier times before the world flipped and crushed them all. He didn't know how long he stared at the picture of his family. He wanted to burn it into his memory, to never forget their smiling faces. They were in his heart, he knew. But ever since the day he'd been told his son was dead, Ronald's heart had turned hard and callous, shutting out anything else that could scald him like that loss. A closed heart, a crushed heart, like Munson's, and now his, was the powerful carrot that could lead a man down the cruel and unusual path. His heart needed to be opened again, then... And only then could he move on and be free. And only then could Sybil truly be free as well. Every time he looked at his wife, he was reminded of Danny. And he was sure the same held true for her. Despite their ruined relationship, they held a part of Danny and always would. They were a disease to each other. Danny had been their chemotherapy. With his death, the cancer blossomed and the rot spread. Ronald put the picture against his hardened heart and held it there with splayed fingers, trying to absorb them back into his soul. His free hand gripped the second item he'd retrieved from the bag. It was cold and heavy, sufficient, a fusion of iron and wood. It was good for only one thing. He pressed the round metal opening against the picture of his family, between his fingers, and closed his eyes. He hummed the melody to Chapin's Cats in the Cradle and stumbled over the first refrain, unable to hum such a haunting song about fatherhood when he was no longer a father. He wasn't surprised was just another sharp edge, puncturing his soul and tightening the heart that beat in his chest, constricting it to nothing more than a pinpoint barely worth mentioning. He wanted to cry, but the tears wouldn't come. He thought tears might lubricate the openings of his heart's chambers, coax the organ into being at least a fraction of its former self. He needed his heart open, and right now, remained stunted, welded shut. But there was one way, held in his hand, that would surely open it again. It was, he knew, cruel and unusual to live without a functioning heart, and with a slight tensing of muscle, Ronald Crawford opened his heart